Hello? Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? My keyboard. You're typing? Well, I'm getting ready to listen to a podcast. Do you like podcasts about scary movies? Uh-huh. What's your favorite podcast about scary movies? Um, Now Playing. You know, the one hosted by Stuart, Arnie, and Marjorie who watch and review all movies in a series? Is that the one that's now reviewing the entire Scream movie series? Yeah, with the ghost face killer. I haven't seen that movie. The podcast has spoilers and harsh language, so you should watch the movie before you listen. Okay. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? Because I want to know who I'm looking at. Today we're discussing Scream, starring Melissa Barrera, Mason Gooding, Jenna Ortega, Jack Quaid, Marley Shelton, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, and Nev Campbell, directed by Matt Bettelini-Olpin and Tyler Gillette. Hi Gen Z, how are you? Thanks teens for coming. This is Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. And Stuart. And this is Marjorie. Can you believe it's been 11 years since we covered the Scream franchise? Now Playing had only been doing retrospective series for under two years at that point when the fourth Scream movie was coming out and we decided to go back and review the OT as well as the fourth one. Yeah, I guess there was a fourth movie. I barely remembered it. It doesn't feel like it had any kind of impact. If you want to talk about what people loved, what people were obsessed about, the late 90s, Scream, Scream 2, Scream 3, those were big talking points. Scream 4, I doubt anyone remembers that one. Although you guys, I want to just point out, did you go and listen to the old show? Oh yeah. Marjorie called it the best of the series, and you said it was a high recommend. And which I changed mid-show to a solid recommend. (laughs) (laughs) And which you'll now change to, what, a mild? Here's the funny thing is, I remembered nothing about that film. Nothing at all. I remembered Nev came back and Courtney Cox, but nothing. It's like the film just was deleted. I hadn't seen it since theaters, and strangely, I don't know if there's a rights thing, but like on iTunes, I bought the Scream trilogy, but it didn't include part four. It was literally, they were only selling one through three as a bundle. I don't know why they were dissing four like that. So I went back. I remembered so little. I thought, Stuart, you recommended it. I looked on our website. I saw it got one recommend. I knew it wasn't Marjorie, so it was a coin toss between you and me. And I remembered you recommended three. And so I'm like, well, it must have been Stuart who recommended four then. It's like Poltergeist. He's just recommending the whole thing. But without listening to our review, I went back and watched Scream 4, and I'm like, this movie's pretty good. I thought I hated this movie. Yeah, I would flip my arrow. I went back and I watched all four films. Pretty consistent series. If you liked one, you're going to get more of the same the next time. And maybe it's not going to have the same impact, but I do feel like more than most franchises we cover you can pretty much count on Scream hitting similar notes. And maybe that had something to do with the fact that so many of the cast came back and Wes Craven, up to this point, has been the director for all of them. But, of course, Wes Craven is gone now and this will be moving on into new hands. 
to clarify, Wes Craven is gone from this earth. He's not gone from this franchise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he died about five years ago. So, yeah, not an option for him to come back. And what is the legacy? I'm going to argue, just right up front, I don't think the reason why Scream 4 didn't launch a new trilogy or get that thing going the way that some horror movies do is because I don't believe millennials and Gen Z care about Freddy Krueger and Jason and Michael Myers the way that we do. We grew up with horror franchises, so it was cool to deconstruct them, but that is not the experience of people that came after us. They don't like playing that game. That's something their parents do. And yet this movie opened to 40 million and toppled Spider-Man No Way Home from the throne, so somebody cares. Did you look around in your theater? I didn't see anyone under 30. I didn't see that many people in our theater, but I think there were some 20, 30-somethings. Nobody really young. If you want a screen for young people, I think you had to pay attention to the one we didn't cover. Kevin Williamson, the original screenwriter, did write the pilot for an MTV show, Scream the Series, that ran for three seasons. Mm. I knew about it. I knew Kevin Williamson was involved. I was somewhat interested, but it wasn't going to be a continuation. It was a reboot. It wasn't going to be in Woodsboro. It wasn't going to have Ghostface Killer. It was going to be a new killer. They were basically appropriating the name, is how I took it. And so, this didn't compel me to try. Yeah, I got through about six episodes, half of the first season. I don't know if this is good or bad, but I don't watch the CW If I wanted to see it, I would have watched Gossip Girl or Riverdale. I feel like there's better teen soaps with a murder mystery in it than what this is. Basically, as you already stated, no ghost face. The only tenuous connection is there is a serial killer in a black cloak, in a white mask with an open mouth that does not look like the painting The Scream, and it is killing photogenic teens in a small town. But yeah, not Woodsboro, nobody knows about Nev Campbell, Sidney Prescott, or anything that happened. It's an entirely different mystery. There's kind of one Randy-ish character. He is an expert in serial killers. All the rules that he devises don't come from slasher movies. They come from, you know, him knowing all about Ted Bundy and Dahmer. That's who establishes the rules, and you you couldn't have the kinds of pacing in which people are killed the way that they are in slasher movies in a TV show. You'd run through the cast by episode three, there'd be no one left alive. This one was much more about social media intrigue and who's sleeping with who and what's my sexual identity today. Really, it was very young, it was very hip. And it was only peripherally interested in a serial killer storyline. I'm not opposed to that level of thing. I just think I would have been more connected. Were it more connected to the scream I cared about? Yeah, it's not your father's scream. And so that's why I was interested when they said scream was coming back. But I can't say I wanted it. Like I said, I didn't remember part four. My incorrect memory was that I didn't like part four. And now with Wes gone, I was like, really? This feels like yet another cash grab. It didn't work in 2011, folks. What makes you think it's going to work in 2022? Again, it's the demographic has changed. We don't have a generation that has that self-awareness about slasher movies. It isn't important to them to see their life through the lens of Jason Voorhees. How do you make them care? I guess you have to make a requel. 
that's what everybody's doing right now. I mean, it feels like now playing started by reviewing reboots, and around the time of The Force Awakens and Jurassic World, we now review requels. Mm. Yeah. I think I'm like half and half fan of requels. I didn't like Jurassic World, but I do love Jurassic Park. I love the first one, but I also didn't like the sequel. So perhaps it's just you can't recreate the magic of something that didn't need a sequel or a requel. Kind of lukewarm on the Star Wars ones. You know, I am a big fan of what they've done with Halloween now, though. I think it's nice how they're continuing the story with Laurie Strode. And it's just kind of something that I think fits with that story. I don't know if this movie needs that. It's almost like they're being a parody of these and of themselves. And in the tradition of requels, the creator of the original is no longer involved. So it's fitting that we have a new directing team. I know them as Radio Silence. They are about 12 years younger than the screenwriters that made the last four Scream movies. And they cut their teeth on the VHS, if you remember that anthology. They had probably the best segment in that one and did sort of a found footage remake of Rosemary's Baby, unofficially, called Devil's Do. Uh, most recently, the, uh, their biggest hit, it was kind of a riff on Get Out, except with a bride finding out that she has to survive her groom's family trying to kill her. Ready or Not? Did you guys see that one? Yep, we saw that one. I thought Ready or Not was merely okay, but I don't think it was anything stellar necessarily. I liked Ready or Not. Can't say I loved it, but I had a good time watching it. I thought Radio Silence was a trio, and the reason they're not directing this as Radio Silence is only two of them are directing. The third, though, did hang around as a screenwriter. Okay, you're right. I did notice on this one, I thought it was just they wanted to be a little more grown up and not use such a hipster name. But yes, they do use their actual proper names. 40-year-olds, obviously people that grew up watching the original Scream, and not unlike the characters in this movie, are rabid fans that want to get it back to the original. Fuck those sequels. We want something as good as part one, because nothing has been as good. I think we all agree with that, except Marjorie. <laughs> nothing has been good except part one. Nothing has been great except for part one. But again, I'm just going to keep in mind, with my flip of the arrow, I am recommending every Scream movie that's come before. So, yeah, I was more or less excited. Eh, no, let me revise that word. I was more or less on board with coming back to Scream 25 years later. I just didn't know what could be done and what could really be said about the genre. Because if they're going to keep the postmodern ideas that define the series, they have to be saying something about horror movies now. That's my interest and my curiosity and concern coming back is... What does Scream have to say 25 years later that it didn't say with Drew Barrymore? Let's find out. Arnie, give him the plot. On the 25th anniversary of the original Scream murders, the Ghostface Killer is back, though no one knows who it is or why they're killing. The first victim is high school Tara Carpenter, played by Jenna Ortega. But unlike any first attack in the past, Tara survives with a broken leg and some stab injuries. Rushing back to Woodsboro to see Tara is Tara's estranged older sister, Sam, played by Melissa Barrera. Sam was raised in Woodsboro, but got into trouble with drugs and alcohol and left town right when she turned 18. And this is her first trip back. Coming with Tara is her boyfriend, Richie, played by Jack Quaid. And Richie is a total newbie to the Woodsboro murders as he's never seen the Stab movies. 
the slasher franchise that started off based on the real murders, but then continued on to its eighth installment, directed by Ryan Johnson, pissing off lots of the true fans. So Richie has to binge-watch the Stab series on Netflix to find out about the history of Woodsboro. On the other hand, Sam knows the history all too well. As Sam confesses to Tara, when Sam was 13, she discovered the man she called her dad wasn't her biological father. She was the bastard daughter of original Scream murderer Billy Loomis. This revelation led to the breakup of Tara and Sam's parents and caused Sam's emotional problems, which involved seeing Billy Loomis in the mirror, again played by a CGI de-aged Skeet Ulrich. I didn't even know that guy was still working. <laughs> mm -hmm. That was part of why I wanted to see it a second time was when I went to IMDb, they don't credit him. I'm like, was that Skeet or did they someone try to like create him from scratch in a like a old school, like Apple IIe? <laughs> like Grand Moff Tarkin in Rogue One. It was not convincing. The second murder in town is Vince Schneider. And it's revealed Vince was the nephew of Stu Mocker, who was Billy Loomis's partner in crime in the original movie. Played by Matthew Lillard, if you don't remember Stu. So who is the murderer? In addition to Tara, Sam, and Richie, our suspects are Wes Hicks, the sheriff's son, played by Dylan Minnette. Twins Chad and Mindy Meeks Marvin, the niece and nephew of Randy Meeks, Jamie Kennedy's character who died in part two. Chad's girlfriend Liv, played by Sonia Ben-Amir. Tara's friend Amber, played by Mikey Madison, or could it be former Woodsboro Sheriff Dewey Riley, again played by David Arquette? After his wife, Gail Weathers, played by Courtney Cox, got a job as a morning news host in New York, Dewey and Gail divorced. Dewey became a drunk and had to resign as sheriff, now living in a trailer park and pining for his ex-wife. But as Dewey was there for every ghost face kill spree, Sam and Richie go to seek the help of the former sheriff. And around this time, film geeks Chad and Mindy realize they are in a requel. A legacy sequel that reboots a franchise and brings in legacy characters like Dewey. And Gale, who's come to Woodsboro to cover the killings. But again, who is the killer? Turns out it's not Wes as he's the next victim, along with his mother Sheriff Hicks, played by Marley Shelton. Anyone remember her from Part 4? Anyone mm -hmm. remember Part 4? <laughs> I just watched it three days ago, yes. Yeah, but if I hadn't watched it, I thought she'd a new character. Then at the hospital, Tara is again attacked. Richie tries to stop Ghostface, but is beaten down as well. But before Ghostface can kill either of them, Dewey and Sam arrive and Dewey shoots Ghostface multiple times. This allows Tara and Richie to escape, but Ghostface was wearing a bulletproof vest, and he does what no Ghostface before him could do. He stabs and kills Dewey. Dewey's death brings back to Woodsboro original Scream final girl Sydney Prescott, played by Nev Campbell. Sydney and Gail want to team up with Sam to hunt down Ghostface and avenge Dewey, but Sam says screw all this. She's taking Tara and Richie and leaving town for all their safety. But before they go, they need to stop and get Tara's asthma inhaler at Amber's house, and it just so happens Amber's having a big party that night. Chad is attacked but survives. Mindy is also attacked. Sydney and Gail show up, having followed Sam, and that's when the killers reveal themselves. It's Tara's friend Amber, and then Richie, Sam's boyfriend from out of town. It turns out both are toxic fans of the Stab franchise who met on Reddit. They feel what Stab needed was new real-life material, so they wrote and enacted Stab 9, and planned to frame Sam for the killings. After all, the daughter of original killer Billy Loomis is a great killer to reinvigorate the lagging franchise. 
But together, Tara, Sam, Gail, and Sydney defeat and kill Richie and Amber, and the twins are revealed to have both survived the attacks and are being taken to the hospital as credits roll. As they start, uh, you gotta begin this way. Even if it weren't a requel that is trying desperately to hit every note of the first movie, you gotta have a young girl alone getting a call on a landline and answering horror movie trivia. Right off the bat, I thought that they are giving it a different twist because they don't make landlines in homes anymore. And I don't even know if you can get home landline service. I have one. Our house is not even wired for telephones. So that says the way things are going. And I did do a double take that this house had a landline. I do like how the Scream franchise is trying to keep landlines relevant in today's world. I'm sure a lot of people have to have that explained to them what exactly that is. They call it out. The person who Tara is texting, supposedly her friend Amber, maybe not, but then yes, it's Amber, asks surprised why they still have a landline and things so they're at least calling out the anachronism i thought that she was going to be watching her elderly parents or something that were in a prior movie let's talk about her parent (laughs) because the name given when she answers the call is ghostface wants to talk to christina carpenter i don't think that's a character from any previous movie i looked through cast lists i couldn't find it there's been no character named Carpenter. They're obviously giving homage to John Carpenter with that name, and that hasn't happened before. Yeah, but we're going to be told Billy Loomis was making eyes with her way back in the day. Like, she would have been at the same house party at the climax of Scream because she had Billy's baby in her. But her last name wouldn't have been Carpenter because she got married. What we find out is she got pregnant with Billy Loomis and told... Her boyfriend, because she was cheating on her boyfriend with Billy, told her boyfriend, I'm pregnant with your baby. So Mr. Carpenter thought he had two kids when, in fact, Mr. Carpenter has one kid and Billy Loomis has one kid. So the Carpenter last name, though, comes from this unknown father. Are you sure about that? Because, like, why would she keep it? He's walked out eight years ago. I don't know why you would still be holding on to that name. The kid's last name is Carpenter. You wouldn't change your kid's last name if you get a divorce. Yeah, I suppose so. But anyway, my point for bringing this up is he's calling to see her. And in all of this movie, this mom never shows up. Like her daughter is in the hospital, (laughs) stabbed. I mean, Nev Campbell will fly in from wherever the hell she is and get there before this mom does. Is she dead? Have the killers (laughs) whacked her? I don't get that impression. I just get the sense that they want to imply that Tara is just a self-raised child. I did also wonder where the mother was and not even a phone call to say, are you okay? Like, she's in London. Then they dropped it. They did say that there was a 10-minute phone call with Tara in the hospital from the mom in London. Now, I was going back to the original Scream. Remember, Sidney Prescott's dad was mysteriously absent on a business trip as well, but then at the very end of that movie, surprise, Billy and Stu had kidnapped that father and kept him tied up this whole time. So, it's strange to me because we never see this mother who, yes, as you point out, should have been hanging around the high school around the time Sidney and they were all getting murdered. And we never see the father either. We never find out much about them. So I wonder if they have left this open for future sequels. Mm. Okay, maybe. 
it seems odd because you're right. It is a callback in a installment that is doing everything it can to call back to the first one. But it means if you're calling that back, you would have her in the climax. You would have her at least be a murdered victim of the killers, part of the plot. Yeah, it's a conspicuous absence because they keep referencing that. That's the huge thing is that the mother slept with Billy Loomis and had a child. And then, yes, 13 years later, when the girl was 13, she found out reading the mother's diary, causing the rift in the marriage, causing the divorce. And so who was the father? The father could have been somebody from that first movie, some background character. You mean the second dad? Yeah. Yeah. The father of Tara and not the father of Sam. Yeah. Who was the familial father, not the birth father, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah. It just seems like they wanted this to feel the way that Sydney's mother is a whore storyline felt. But they're kind of hoping we ignore the fact that it would mean that this character was there in the first movie. And I don't think she was. And you talk about this opening kill. And one of the things that hits me is I don't really know Jenna Ortega. This is probably because I don't watch a lot of teen television and things. When I rewatched Scream and I realized I knew just about all of the actors there from films and TV shows I'd watched over 10 years, by the time we got to Scream 4, I was pretty tenuous on who the cast is. And here, this cast is... A lot of unknowns to me. The only thing I've seen Jenna Ortega in was Iron Man 3 in the huge role of Vice President's daughter. I did see her, I guess, in Insidious 2. I don't remember her in Insidious 2. So this opening does not have a Drew Barrymore level feel to me as what I think I'm going to see is an opening kill here of perhaps the biggest star of the film. The young cast, the new blood, what I noticed the common theme is there are a lot of them are celebrity kids. They're people that are actually related to Hollywood royalty uh, in some way. So I don't know that Jenna Ortega is. It doesn't even look on her resume like she's a star of Disney Channel or anything else. But I think you're right. The reason why we're supposed to be treating it the same way as Drew Barrymore is that the surprise this time is she's going to live. I think that this is them elevating her to a star role that she hasn't had yet. And she's pretty charming here. I mean, she's savvier. One thing that's clear is Drew watched that original, and she's also talkative to the killer. You felt like she was maybe even a little flirtatious. Here, I guess Tara is talkative because this man introduces himself as someone from his mother's AA program, and maybe she's digging dirt on what drugs her mom is abusing or trying not to abuse. At the same time that she's raiding the liquor cabinet and texting her friend Amber to come on over because they're unsupervised. The ghost face voice, whoever it is on the other side of the line, fades in and out of the ghost face voice. Like, when he picks up the phone, the first hello is clearly that modulated, affected ghost face. Roger Jackson. Yeah. But I think it's all that actor. Mm -hmm. I just think sometimes he's doing the voice and sometimes he's just kind of segueing into a normal voice for conversation so that we, the audience, know that it's going to be ghost face. And again, this caller, who this actually is, is Richie. Two killers again. This would be Richie. He's going to send a video stream of him outside the window of Amber, 
who is her best friend that lives down the street. I think they're neighbors, or they must live in close proximity, because Tara, when she realizes she's in danger, will grab a knife and try to run out the door to go save her. Yeah, is this original person on the phone Amber? Is it Richie? It can't be the same person on the phone and doing the attacks, because at one point, the voice is going to be talking on the phone while Ghostface is popping out to attack. So I kind of thought maybe it was Amber on the phone. Just because you're showing a a video doesn't mean it had to be taken right then. You can always say, hey, look at this live video that was recorded a little earlier. And I thought it was Richie doing the attack when I was kind of looking back on this. The only thing I noticed was Amber's not tall enough, but I couldn't tell where the short was because they had bad camera angles on it. So it looked like it was the same height. Although, we'll get to some other clues later on. I watched that for the second time because I'm like, that girl is short. There's no way that she's the same height as Richie. But she is inclined to wear combat boots. So I did notice that she puts on size in certain scenes by putting on shoes with big wedges on it. They didn't totally cheat, but they they did kind of fudge it. But of course, however they want to do it, we want to see... What's the trivia? And how is this girl going to do it? Since she is a fan of horror movies, but she doesn't like those stupid 80s slasher movies. She's not a fan of Stab. She likes elevated horror. I kind of liked Ghostface's scoffing at what is elevated horror. Sounds boring. And yes, it's going to be her knowledge of the Stab franchise that's supposed to save Amber's life, not her knowledge of the Babadook or It Follows. And of course, this works in a second way by teaching the audience, both fans, what has happened to certain characters and to people that have maybe never seen a screen movie, kind of the basics about what has happened. You'll notice all of the questions are about the first Stab movie because we'll find out these killers don't like the sequels. The only thing that matters to them is that original. They're not going to ask about Stab 2 through 8. They want to know who was the star of Stab, who wrote the book that inspired Stab, who was the killer in Stab, and that's the one that she gets wrong. It was a trick question. It was a multiple choice, and it was multiple killers. She's not wrong. I I actually think that, technically speaking, she answered the correct answer. She just didn't answer it fully. I agree. I thought he cheated on that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, when he tricked Drew Barrymore about who's the killer in Friday the 13th, that's not really a trick. It's true that Jason's mother is the killer in that one. But here, I'm like, no, Billy Loomis is one of the killers. He seems to be the one that people remember. I noticed later, all the kids talk about Billy Loomis all the time. No one seems to remember Stu. I guess that works to their advantage because they'll actually be able to stage the finale at Stu's house. But Tara gets to live. We're going to find out that's not an accident. Although, man, she takes some abuse. That compound fracture to the leg, I winced when Ghostface stomped on that leg. Yeah, that was particularly violent. I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting just a bunch of stabs. I think it's interesting that this one starts out with a really gruesome attack, which is something that we really didn't see in the past movies, which is one of the things I had a complaint about. It was not that I'm a big fan of gore, but it was like horror light on this. But this one, she survives, but she suffers some pretty graphic injuries. It's just out of line with it, but at the same time, I kind of applaud the new attention to gore. One thing that's clear to me is that these directors, while trying to emulate Wes Craven and what he did, they have a more consistent tone. I would say this one feels far less campy than any previous Scream movie. 
and maybe more gory too. Maybe that goes hand in hand. The reason why the violence here, I winced when in order to protect herself, she puts her hand up and great. Now you have a knife sticking through your palm. Like that one hurt. Yeah, the knives to hands are just always horrible to look at. Yeah, I agree. We think this girl is dead meat. And yeah, she has a home security system and the cops are coming. But it's a screen movie. You have an opening kill. You don't have an opening attack. It is a surprise when we jump to the sister the next day and she gets a text that her sister, her half-sister, it should be said, is in the hospital. She's getting a call from Wes, obvious nod to Wes Craven there. It's going to be the sheriff's son. And it's a little bit shocking because I thought the first kill would be in Woodsboro, right? But when we see the sister... There's a little title on the screen that says it's Modesto. I'm like, did they move out of Woodsboro? Are we having these murders in Modesto? What's going on? We're going to find out the sister ran away from Woodsboro and works at a bowling alley with this guy, Richie. And Sam, yes, in this scene is popping antipsychotics. We will find out that, yes, she is the daughter of Billy Loomis and she is still seeing him in her mirror reflections and the part of the reason why she has run away is she believes she's a killer i think my biggest problem with this chick is she's okay for a new nev campbell but i never believe that sam has an inner killer inside of her no only she factored in as a real suspect this is where i was kind of getting a lot of hope because i didn't know much about this movie going into it and i'm like Okay, so they are kind of doing like a reboot with a little bit more likable characters. And I wasn't sure if anybody was going to show up in this movie from the previous cast. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Well, again, I went in not seeing any trailers or anything like this with the movie. So I thought maybe what would happen is like maybe these were the kids of the people and they're having to relive it and there'd be like a slight nod to them or something. But as we can see, I was a little bit wrong on that, but a little bit right. I think it would have been okay. It takes a long time for the legacy characters to come in. I wasn't missing them. It felt like when they show up, they accentuated what was going on, but it wasn't like, oh, now the movie can begin. It's interesting to me that they bring in Melissa Barrera as perhaps the new Nev for a new series. She certainly doesn't carry with her coming into this film. The name recognition Nev Campbell, Party of Five, brought into the first scream. I looked up Melissa. I've not seen In the Heights or All the World is Sleeping, but that seems to be almost all of her American work. She's primarily been a Hispanic television actress. Again, I don't think they're going for Gen Z recognizable teen actors you grew up with and see them in a adult horror situation. I don't get that vibe at all. No, but it's interesting because will people have loyalty to Sam for sequels? You know, I, I am just going into this with the idea if this is a requel, then Sam is Ray. If this is The Force Awakens, right? Then Sam is Ray, Dewey is Han. I guess Nev is Luke, who shows up at the very last minute when being the main character in the first one. And so, if this is Ray, does anybody want to see her story continue in Scream 6? Do people become attached to her? I think she's good in this film. I like the character. If I never see Sam again, I'm not gonna cry about it. If she were just the heroine, then yeah, she's good enough. 
she's no worse than what we've had in the past. But they're doing something interesting here. Not unlike Friday the 13th Part 5, they're talking about a new beginner. And they're talking, Amber even really says, part of the problem with the Stab movies is that they don't have a consistent killer. Maybe if you have a psychotic character that has an inner serial killer and Billy Loomis is your father, maybe what they're setting up here is that in future sequels, we know exactly who's underneath the mask, and it's this chick. It is interesting that for the first time since maybe the first movie, because there could have been an unreliable narrator with Nev in that first movie, but you have to wonder, could Sam be the killer and unaware of it? Could it be one of those kind of tricks? You know, going back to Psycho with Mother, is it possible that this is Sam? Yeah, and she is a killer. I mean, this movie will confirm that she very much is her father's daughter. She doesn't just free herself of the serial killer. She makes Swiss cheese. But we'll get there when we get there. She's definitely determined to go back to Woodsboro and help out Tara and be a support for her, even though it's been, I think they say, two or three years since they've seen each other. Now, we've said that Richie is probably the killer from that opening kill. And you said a lot of these actors are kids of Hollywood. This is Jack Quaid, Meg Ryan's son, along with Dennis Quaid. I had to check to see if it was Randy Quaid or Dennis Quaid who had the child. It is Dennis Quaid. No, no, he's got his father's smile. Dennis Quaid is a very recognizable smirk. And this kid's got it very devilish. And this kid, I'm sure it's part of why he got cast as the killer. He's got a very devilish grin. He's one of the only cast members I know because he's Huey on The Boys. And I love The Boys and think this actor's really good in it. And so here I'm getting to see he has a little bit of acting range as I don't feel I'm seeing Huey on the screen playing Richie. But Woodsboro is a fictional city, so we don't know how far it is from Modesta. I guess we're taking it. He drove to Woodsboro the night before, and he just wasn't with Sam that night. I definitely think that's the case. And he's been to Woodsboro many times. He will sit here and play the role of innocent boyfriend that hasn't seen a stab movie and is just going to go along to be uh, moral support. But early on, I had my eye on him. You know, Dewey is right to call him out. He looks very suspicious just by being a outsider romantic interest. He becomes number one suspect just for that reason. When they come into Woodsboro, did you notice that they drive past a Elm Street with the prominent street sign, say, you know, another nod to Wes? Sure. Yeah, I don't think there's a frame of footage in this film that doesn't have some callback or reference specifically to either Wes Craven or the original screenwriter Kevin Williamson. Not unlike the killers themselves, the directors are really announcing we're super fans that are super particular and we want it to feel just like the original. That's the goal here. Screw Scream 2 through 4. We want you to forget those. Let's just do one again, because that's the only great movie. But yeah, they drive past Elm Street onto the hospital to see Tara. We don't know at this point why there's tension between Tara and Sam, but it's just kind of hinted at at this point. And we see this other group of kids who will become the suspects list. They are kids that Sam used to babysit, and they know her and seem to like her, but they look older than Tara. Like, Tara, to me, looks 13, 
and they look 18. Like they look like they're in high school and Tara looks like she's still in eighth grade. So I think it's really weird that we're expected to think they all hang out. They don't spend a lot of time in the hospital visiting their friend. Tara does feel very separate from this group of friends who there's quite a few of them. They're introduced in a group scene and it's really hard for me to keep a breast of who all is in this friends group? Who are my suspects as I start to check them off the list? When I really get familiar with a character is usually right around the time they die. This is also the first point where we see Amber getting really pushy in the friends group and accusing the boyfriend of it. Yeah. We'll skip them for now and let's just kind of finish up where Sam and Tara are. Because you mentioned that there's a secret there. And yes, Sam is working very hard to atone for being gone for so long. Tara's like, why are you here? I can't believe you came. And when she's ready to talk about why she left, it is because when she was 13, Tara's now 13, but when she was 13, I guess that would have been, what, about five or six years ago. I did the math. She has to be 25 now because it's been 25 years since Scream. Oh, right. Yes. Great. You're right. Okay. Good job. All right, I'm more confused, but all right, so it's really been a long time. Like seven years, because the the day she turned 18, she left town. So if she's 25 now... Okay, so Tara's more like 15 or 16 like these other kids. Okay, I just, I can't shake that. In my mind, Tara is friends with Amber, and they're younger than the other ones here. But, okay, well, we'll go with your timeline. It makes a lot of sense. But the point is... Sam read her mother's diary, found out the truth about her parental lineage, went down and accused her mom in a very loud voice. And the dad like, whoa, like, and then walks out the door and never comes back. Like, I get being mad. I get getting divorced. But like, you really not even going to stop to ask questions. You're just going to march out the door and never come back to see your children or even your real biological child again. That's angry. Maybe he's the killer. The hospital is where we see the first appearance of Sam's demon, which is her father, Billy. How shocked were you to see Skeet Ulrich in the mirror? It was kind of lost on me because I didn't know who that was. I didn't recognize him. I don't know that I would recognize Skeet Ulrich if he showed up at my house and was here for dinner or if he was selling me something. I don't know really what he's doing anymore, if he's acting or not. As the story unfolded, it obviously all came to light, but... I don't know if it's bad CGI or what, but didn't really go for the impact with me. I was a bit shocked. It did not look quite like Skeet did in the first film, but there was enough Johnny Deppness there for me to know what they were going for with. I wasn't sure if it was Skeet CGI de-aged or a new actor trying to be Billy Loomis. I assumed it was him, but it was hard to tell. It took me a long, not a long, long beat, but maybe about two or three visions before I realized that that was supposed to be Billy Loomis. I didn't even connect it to the first movie's character and killer. I was like, oh, who's this devilish sort? Like, it doesn't look a thing. Not a thing like Skeet Ulrich. And he's there, like, in his shot and stabbed bloody form, kind of reminding me a little bit of American Werewolf in London, where you see the ghost of your dead friend and they have all the injuries and everything. So it played as funny to me, but yeah, it also took me a beat to realize what they were doing with Billy Loomis showing up in her vision. And it's when she explains all the family lineage that 
it finally becomes clear, oh, okay, that's what they're doing with that person in the mirror. Again, and I put part of my confusion on, you know, CGI and part of it on Melissa Barrera. She's just not a convincing psychopath. At no point does she feel like she's got demons. And so this whole storyline, which I think they're hinging on, just doesn't really work for me. Like, I just, I don't buy it. You're not going to kill nobody except the bad guy at the end. And this is where I figure out there must be two killers. I mean, I figured that it's a screen movie that's been a consistent pattern. But when she gets a phone call and the killer's already in the room, if the guy making the call is the same one that's coming at her when the door closes, she would have heard him talking. Not through the phone, but like actually there in the room with her. So we know that that is Amber on the line and Richie in the break room of the hospital. And we'll even find out, it even says, this is sort of a joke of the movie, is the phone kind of says, we think this call is from Amber. You know, they make a big deal about maybe the phone has been cloned. No, it's Amber. (laughs) Yeah, our second real attack of the film where somebody's hurt, the first real death is a completely underserved character of Vince Schneider, who we saw in one scene as being kind of rude to the clique of friends at the high school, and then at the bar, he pulls a switchblade on them, and I'm like, okay, well, this guy's not the killer, because he's way too obvious of a killer type that is pulling a knife and everything to actually be the murderer. Well, he's going to be taken off the suspect list about a minute later as he's taking a piss outside, and Ghostface chooses Vince to be the first real one to die. Ghostface being Amber. This is what Amber's doing while Richie's running around in the hospital, pretending to watch stab movies on Netflix. Yes, Amber is actually there at this pool hall, and all the friends have been hanging out, talking. This is another Kevin Williamson joke, right? Like, we'll find out that Chad's girlfriend, Liv, dated this guy last summer. I know what you did last summer, Liv, and it's this greaser guy. Like, she mentions the fact that she hooked up last summer with this guy. Well, the screenwriter of Scream also penned that franchise as well. At least the first. Right. I don't know much about that. I'm pretty sure he didn't do the third. I didn't see anything beyond the first one. I don't know. We'll have to do that series at some point. And we're going to find out one of the only references to Stu, the whole movie, Vince was Stu's nephew. Because a lot of these people died as teenagers. We have a whole lot of nephews and nieces coming into this film. And I think Kyle Galdner, the reason why they cast this actor was he was in that Elm Street reboot. But again, this is why he's the greasy older guy you don't want to get messed with. He's sort of legitimate, but not really. And I think we're supposed to look at Liv as a real high suspect because she seems to be the dangerous bad girl. Don't believe the pink hair. She seems a little edgy. She seems a lot more psychotic than Sam or really any of the other female characters. I thought she was a red herring because I thought she was going to live. I thought they were telling us in her name, Liv Mackenzie, that she would live. That's very clever, but they weren't that clever with it. Yeah, or is it for Liv Tyler because all the names are references to other Hollywood types or whatever? Incidentally, Chad, the one that's playing her boyfriend, once I knew it, I was like, oh, yeah, he looks just like him. Cuba Gooding's kid. Oh, Hmm. The one that has mysterious bruises on his biceps claims he got them from football practice. But yes, maybe they all could be the suspects. That's what is quickly identified here. And we have our first kill. 
But yeah, just to jump ahead, just in case you're confused about who's doing what, this is Amber killing this guy because he has that tenuous connection to Stu. And everyone that's going to die in this movie needs to bring it back to the original. That's why they kill who they do. And by the way, another callback. Did you notice Red Right Hand? The song that they've worked into all four previous movies is what's playing on the stereo when he gets stabbed in the neck. That seems to be the new M.O. Maybe it's just Amber's M.O., but she really likes to go for the throat. I don't know if that's symbolic or not of the series, but she really likes, more than any other time, this this one, they seem to really want to jab blades into people's jaws and jugulars. And so this is when Sam and Richie decide, we have to bring in some legacy characters. Let's go see how Dewey's doing. We're going to have Dewey for the first half of the film, Sydney for the last half of the film, Gail for basically the last half of the film. None of the legacy characters feel like they put in full-time work on this. I guess it was nice of them to come back. I know Nev said she was not wanting to return to this franchise without Wes's blessing, but, you know, you can't have a legacy sequel without the originals, and be it for love or money, we got David Arquette back. Art mirroring life, as we all know, Cox and Arquette divorced, whereas they were... Married when we saw them last in Scream 4. Now they are divorced in this film. And it's been kind of a mystery because we saw that the sheriff is Judy Hicks. Wes's mom has taken over that role. So if she's the sheriff, what is Dewey doing? And the answer is living in a trailer, drinking, and painting Bob Ross paintings. Apparently Arquette is literally a certified Bob Ross instructor. I didn't know you could be such a thing. Oh, yes. He made the whole cast paint pretty little clouds and stuff. That's a huge thing. Yeah, you have to be a certified instructor to teach Bob Ross method. Okay. Well, you can see some of his work here in the background, and I think it's meant to symbolize that, yeah, this guy doesn't have a lot to live for. I never assumed that meant that he was desperate enough to kill anyone but maybe himself. He seems suicidal here, but not a credible suspect. Here, just maybe to bring his expertise to these kids that are trying to figure it out. This is where I thought it was going to turn into like the Scooby-Doo gang of the new kids with the old sidekick trying to solve this. And I like David Arquette. I think that, I don't know, he just has this like nice quality about him and the roles he plays, like kind of easygoing and nice. But this is where I thought definitely he was going to be the Scooby-Doo guys with the old guy trying to figure out the killer. I mean, it is. Yeah. I really did like how he was ready to go out and take on the Ghostface killer. I mean, he has nothing else really to live for. He doesn't have Gail anymore. His friends are all dead and the ones that are alive have moved away. But he's damn ready to take on the Ghostface killer again. I found it interesting that they couldn't get certain rights, I guess, to a morning talk show because he's watching Gail on TV and you hear the announcer go, From Studio 1A in Rockefeller Center. So she's hosting the Today Show, right? That's Studio 1A at 30 Rock. And yet, underneath Gale, it says, Good morning. And then whatever's under that is cut off in the frame. Is she on Good Morning America? What show is she doing? Yeah, I mean, the screen kind of lives in its own world that kind of looks like ours, but doesn't always. I mean, yes, it apparently has Pizza Hut, some of the product placement that happens in here, but it also can create its own sort of fictional equivalents as well. The point is, the way I take it is, he's still hung up on her. You think the way it plays in this moment, 
oh, she got successful, she left him behind, and poor Dewey had to stay in Woodsboro, and she went to New York City. We'll actually find out later when they have their one scene together, she will say that David Arquette, Dewey, is the one that left her. That he couldn't hang New York for, he can't hang in New York longer than, what, two weeks, two months, something like that. Yeah, this movie will fool you because they'll act like they're still in love. She's going to have a lot of histrionics when he finally bites it. Dewey is like the most likable character in this entire series. I don't care for anyone else. Dewey is it. He's been fun. David Arquette plays it in a nice down-home kind of way. It was really sad to see him very upset about Gail and like living this past life, but drinking himself into happiness or sadness, whatever the case may be. But he doesn't want to help the kids. He kicks them out of the house. Of course, this is a trope, right? He kicks them out. And then there's always that moment of the person brooding alone. And then, sure enough, he seems to know exactly where to go to find them once they've left his house. And he does place a call to Sydney, who I am shocked. I don't know if you guys caught this. She talks about her husband, Mark. She married McDreamy from part three. <laughs> I looked it up because I'm like, who was Mark? And I certainly didn't remember that role. But yeah, it wasn't mentioned in Scream 4. But apparently they've gotten together at some point and have kids together. And another sort of joke is she's always telling people don't run away. But when we see her, she's jogging, running uh, away from this problem. She's not coming back to Woodsboro. Don't worry. I'm not going to participate in this movie, Dewey. You don't have to worry about me stepping back in now that uh, Ghostface is back. But you're right. Dewey is back. He is going to be the one to grab his gun. I think he gets his little Western theme again as he comes sauntering up. Briefly, the Broken Arrow music. Yeah. To the Meeks Martin house. Uh, if you didn't know Randy Meeks, they will announce it by showing you the fireplace mantle with all of his fake Oscars and pictures and these kids are the nieces and nephews of the film expert. Randy, the guy that told you the rules, has passed that genetically down to Mindy and she's going to be telling the rules of the requel. And we get a brief look at Randy's sister, Martha, who was clumsily inserted into Scream 3. So they haven't completely forgotten the sequels here. We got Mark from Scream 3 as Sydney's husband. And yeah, Randy's sister is now the mother of these two film geek twins. She'll always be wiener dog to me, but I know what <laughs> you mean. The friend's little powwow at their house was kind of interesting. It was a good introduction to all the different characters because at that point, I still didn't know everybody's name. The tangent on requels and toxic fans seemed really kind of out of place and seemed more tongue-in-cheek since that was kind of the only time they mentioned that till the end. It kind of felt like it was just they were trying to give a message to their fan base. So what are the rules of a requel? That's the one thing that I was really like, are we going to really go there? Are we really going to have people provide meta-commentary on ways that you can survive a horror movie today? Particularly if they're not going to go the elevated horror route. I wouldn't know what those rules are. Be naked, I think. But what are the rules of a requel? Well, what I heard was, it sounds like Stab H was the 
opposite of what true fans want. Yes, it's kind of funny that it was directed by Ryan Johnson. Didn't have any legacy characters. We see one clip of Ghostface and he's got like a flamethrower instead of like a knife now. <laughs> no sleeve. Yeah. It's like he's a muscle dude. I do not see that as a Ryan Johnson film. I mean, having seen Looper and what's the one in our book? Brick. And Knives Out. I do not see him as the muscled armed flamethrower kind of film. I'd love to see him make that though. No, I think the point is that he made the unpopular Star Wars flick and he's just ruining franchises right and left. <laughs> and Mindy is going to call out, what do fans want? What are the rules are? You can't just do a straight up remake. You can't do Child's Play 2018, the new Flatliners, the new Black Christmas. You can't start over and pretend like we haven't seen the other ones. You have to find a way to be a remake and a sequel at the same time. And she cites Star Wars, Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, Terminator, Halloween. We reviewed them all. You know about this. At this point, did it feel like they've nailed something? I mean, I've never used the word requel before now, but I guess we have been talking about legacy sequels. That's the way I've described them for a good four or five years. I know Brock's used the term requel with me off air. It's a term I've heard. I've never been quite sure what to call them, but yeah, requel works for me. And... I usually find them very lazy retreads. I mean, go back to my review of The Force Awakens. I recommended it, but I was pretty harsh on it, too, for just being Star Wars retold not quite as well, not quite as inventively, and not with anywhere near as good a villain. But you've never not recommended one. I mean, it's worth pointing out that it is true that if the choices between making Halloween 6, The Curse of Michael Myers, and making Halloween 2018, where you're going to have Jamie Lee Curtis back and she's going to do some pathos with the acting and all of that, like that's where the fans want to see continuation. If you're going to make one, honor what was done in the original, bring the legacy people back. And yeah, I guess Star Wars told you that those legacy characters are expendable. They could kill Dewey. They could kill Sydney, They could kill Gale should they come back to Woodsboro. And this film frustrated me because just like The Force Awakens, what I was coming in here kind of wanting was the reunion of the trio like we had yeah. in part four i wanted those three together again the same way i wanted luke han and leia together again in the force awakens but luke was kept till the final scene and han was killed off in the middle thus forever telling the audience you're never getting that here they do the same thing they're gonna kill one of the characters and not give us the reunion yeah i think the easy thing to do and i have to just assume that nev campbell wasn't game was it would be her kids right if you're saying that in a requel the rules are you got to kill people connected to the original well, why are we trying to chase down Randy's niece and nephew? Why are we chasing down the son of the cop from Stab 4? Obviously, Sidney Prescott's baby that she's pushing along on the riverfront is victim number one. You would make her more central to this movie by having her be mother-child. You know, like it would be her and her daughter. Sam you know, might be related to her. That's a good point because I felt there's a lot missing with this part of it with the relations and having to backtrack to figure out who everyone was. So I think he got something there as far as that relation in Sam with Sydney. 
Yeah, and there's just people that here that aren't related, like Liv. I mean, I guess she's a girlfriend and all, but it would be funny if Sydney's kid was dating Randy's niece and nephew. Like, that could be something that they could have played with. But that would involve Sydney still living in town, and thus Nev being on set twice as long as she is. Right. I, I have to believe that she gave them what she was willing to and no more. And here's the compliment I can give. We've been pretty hard on Nev Campbell throughout this series. She's not my favorite actress, but I believe all three legacy performers give their best franchise performance in this movie. The best I've seen David Arquette, the best I've seen Dev Campbell, and the best I've seen Courtney Cox is here in Scream 5. It's interesting that they brought back the cast, including Nev Campbell. Her and Courtney Cox kind of became mama bears to fight the ghost face killer, kind of like Laurie Strode did in Halloween, the remake. So maybe that's like the new horror trend is to bring back the survivors and make it so evil dies tonight. They have authority. There's something about them when they show up on screen. There's almost a calming sense of, ah, they're going to take care of this. They know what's going on. They have command of the screen. And I'm not sure that would be true if they were just in any other movie. But here in their own franchise, they own it now. And it is satisfying to see them give such lived-in, hollowed, you know, hard-lived performances. David Arquette, I haven't seen him in a movie, God, I don't know when, the last time I've seen David Arquette in a movie. But I think Bone Tomahawk might have been the only thing I've seen in the last 15 years with him. But he's good. I personally like Dewey. Dewey's my favorite character of this entire series. It was an easy pick because I think David Arquette's kind of good and he plays the character well. He's kind of dumb. He's kind of slow. And I thought he was pretty good. It was a little sad to see him broken down. But I think you always get that in a horror movie where you get the former hero is always ended up like still living with it and battling it and a little bit run down when they're called in to help again. But love David Arquette in this. What about Nev? You've never been a fan of Nev. She was better than she used to be. I don't know why I find her so annoying. The things that I didn't like about her and Dewey and Gail kind of weaves into their own autobiography. I feel like in some ways they're revealing a little bit more about themselves. Like, I feel like Nev Campbell did have to run away from the screen franchise. And like, it has changed her focus to being a mom and not an actress and all of that stuff. It just makes it more interesting that they're middle-aged than when they were younger. I think Courtney Cox got more tolerable in the 2000s. 80s, she was okay. 90s, I, I didn't really care for the TV show Friends, so that she's kind of annoying in that. But I think she really kind of came into her own in the 2000s and became not just Courtney Cox from Friends. And I think she did that here. She's not super annoying in this. And I always felt she didn't fit in the series because she seems like she's a little bit older than Nev Campbell and the other actors in the show. But she is fun. And even though some of it was a little bit serious, she still looks like she still was having fun with the role. And it was kind of nice to see her turn into a little bit of a badass. I'll agree with you, Stuart. I hadn't thought about it, but Courtney Cox and David Arquette, I think, are giving their best performances here as these characters. Nev has always felt like she never wanted to be in any of them after the first one. Every time I've seen her in two, three, and four, I felt like maybe it's how she's playing Sydney as a damaged character who had been stabbed multiple times and whatnot, but I always felt like Nev had this chip on her shoulder 
in those movies. I still liked her in part one. When we did our rewatch back then and seeing it again, I feel like there's a lightness to her in that first movie that I forget about. But yeah, here she does feel more relaxed. She feels more comfortable being in the franchise, I feel like. Like she's come to terms with how Scream has overshadowed her life and come back on, I guess, her terms and decided to be a little bit more confident in her portrayal. Yeah, and the other thing is, uh, it's one thing when you don't want to do it and you're the star of the franchise, but here we have new stars. We have the young cast willing to do the bulk of the work, and we have Sam literally told in this scene, it's like, okay, you're the star of this fan fiction, and by the way, if you're the daughter of Billy Loomis, you look like the most likely killer. And she runs away crying and looking in the mirror again and and seeing that her dad is telling her, go ahead and accept who you are and cut some throats. And a throat is going to be cut. We have taken a little while away from deaths. So it's time to kill Wes, the sheriff's son, who I was starting to narrow down my list of suspects. And at this point, I will say I never suspected Richie because he was from out of town. Amber was pretty high up on my suspect list because it was constantly her phone being cloned and nobody else's phone. And Amber wasn't showing up very much in the movie. But I kind of wondered if it was going to be Amber and Wes. With Wes being named for Wes Craven and whatnot. But no, this is where he's going to get ruled out. They're going to kill his mother first. Yeah, it's a play on Psycho. It's a boy and his mother. And uh, the joke is that this time, (laughs) the Norman Bates is the Janet Lee. Like, he's got this awful bleach blonde hair, and he's going to get the shower scene. Happening in this movie, at the exact same counter mark, if you were to play Psycho at the same time as this movie, I think they would both, around the 45-minute mark, have a character getting into a shower scene. You would really think that he was the one that was about to die. They do the Hitchcock shot where you it's like straight up into the shower nozzle and it's the same shower nozzle as Psycho has. They're being completely obvious with her homage there. Right, but of course, this is all to fake us out. We think he's about to get it. We're not thinking that when the mom pulling up to the yard that she's running right into the blade, that Ghostface is waiting in broad daylight on the porch to get her. Not only does he go for the neck, but I think you die when you're stabbed eight times. If you're only stabbed seven, like Tara was only stabbed seven, (laughs) and Chad's only stabbed seven, there's eight stab movies, and the eighth stab is what kills the character. She gets it eight times. Pretty brutal. Yeah, the kills, I think, are still a little bit more advanced in this one than they have been in the past. It's more of a good slasher instead of a watered-down slasher. And again, I credit that to Radio Silence. Again, they're taking the goofy characters and making them dramatic, and they're taking the kills, and they're making them less campy and funny and more kind of eye-widening. I mean, it really, it's not anything I couldn't take, but it is just a little bit more brutal than anything we've seen in the series before. But they're also going to play this game of cat and mouse with Wes's death, where they are going totally pomo in the fact that, like, Wes will get into his refrigerator, and you can't see what's behind the refrigerator door, and the music is going to swell as he's closing that door. Oh, there's nothing there. And they do that two or three times, and then they do it again later in the movie. They're really going to try to freak us out by ratcheting up the music, only to give us nothing, and... (laughs) It worked to the point that, like, Wes is walking around his house so much that I ended up getting a refill of my drink and then being like, oh yeah, there's a killing going on. 
Yeah, I think you lose the suspense by it. I know that they're trying to play a game there, but yeah, three times is a lot to do. Will Ghostface pop out past the bathroom door, the spice cabinet, the fridge? By the time this kid finally gives it at the front door, we're we're more than ready for it. But again, return to the gore. Unusual for the franchise. Maybe they feel they need to up the stakes a little bit, considering their competition now. It is gory. I mean, watching that knife go in his throat and then out the other side was a sight. But I am feeling like the movie is a little meandering. By not having a focal character, or at least that's how it feels like to me, it's difficult to get a sense of momentum and what the character is supposed to be doing and what's happening. It gets back to the fact that I just don't feel Melissa Barrera is able to carry this movie, let alone this franchise. Part of it, a small part, may be that she has to share screen time with legacy characters, but these group of friends do not hang out enough together. They're just not enough ensemble shots where we can feel like we're following them to places they would normally go. The only time we're seeing Wes alone, and this happens again with a couple of characters, the times we see them alone are the times they're being killed. We don't get solo shots with them. I think back to the first one where we saw Randy and his job at the video store talking with Stu about the murders and things. I feel like we needed a little more camaraderie in here. And I'm not saying add scenes. This movie is almost two full hours. I don't want it to elongate. But I would have liked to have seen just more interplay between the teens instead of, oh, Wes is alone at his house. I guess he's going to die next. My guess is they're all here and they're on the editing room floor. This movie is badly edited. I, I want to just point out there. One thing I observed the second time is like people will say dialogue that seems unprovoked and like scenes will just cut in and out in very awkward ways. And you realize, oh, they had to cut the scene down to the basics to give you information. And we're losing that camaraderie. They don't feel like a bunch of people that hang out together. And so... Yeah, that's the one thing that this original movie had. I felt like all the victims at at one point or another were hanging out together and going to the same high school and having the same youthful experience. And here, because Sam has been living in Modesto and Tara looks like she's 12 years old and yeah, some of these people never seem to be in the same scene with one another... We just don't have a meaningful circle of friends. I think we're missing the camaraderie, and I think we're missing the build-up to the end. Like, the big reveal at the end. I think that's missing, because we get about, what, five minutes of it? And I think if we had more camaraderie, it would have more of an impact when you get to the end, and it's the big reveal. I was watching the second time. One thing I was definitely doing was watching scenes where Amber and Richie were in the same room and how they would talk to each other. And they are playing it a lot like Stu and Billy did in the first one. If you remember, Stu and Billy were always joking about, you're the killer. No, you're the killer. This crew does do it. Early on, Richie is like, you don't have a very good alibi. You you look like a killer. And she comes back with calling him Netflix. And it has a similar kind of vibe as what Billy and Stu did. But none of the other characters do I pick up on that. You're right. When we see them, they're usually alone fighting Ghostface. Like Tara's next scene where she's watching Dawson's Creek in her hospital room. And the lights go off. And she has to painfully get into a wheelchair and try to escape. She makes it to the nursing station and sees that the cop posted there is dead and the gun has been taken. And so, no, she's not going to call for help. She's just going to bash Richie when he comes running in there. 
This is why we know that the ghost face is Amber, because Richie is a victim. He gets slashed on the wrist. He gets, quote-unquote, knocked out, which I would make fun of, except, of course, we now know after seeing the movie, he's play-acting by lying on the ground. It's interesting that she made Sam choose between her boyfriend, Richie, and Tara, her sister, when Amber and Richie are having this Reddit relationship in order to recreate and remake the all-new Better Stab. This scene, we see Ghostface touch something by his throat or her throat to turn on the voice box when having the phone call with Sam. Mm -hmm. And in the past, it's never been the same person on the phone as the body, but because Richie's on the ground, Mm -hmm. that's why Amber actually, we get this red glowing light through the black outfit of this voice changer box being used. And it's because Ghostface in person, is the one talking on the phone. Yeah. Although the uh, magical voice box machine wasn't introduced until Scream 3, so technically, if they loved the original, they wouldn't be using it. But we know Amber's not that good of a mimic. And Dewey gets a heroic moment here, but I think you know, right? You know the second that, like, he puts everyone on the elevator and says, I gotta go back to shoot him in the head. Even though the audience is going to scream no when he finally gets gutted, we know just by his going back to confront Ghostface in the middle of the movie with 50 more minutes to go that he ain't getting out of this scene alive. I didn't see his death coming. I really didn't think Dewey would get killed. I feel he could have been someone to kind of go along and be like the person who the new people rely on when the ghost face killer resurfaces, or I guess all the copycats. But I I feel like it didn't have as much impact as it should have. The death of him could have been much more to pay homage to that original character. Yeah, I agree. He, We should have had the three characters together again from the original. But I also, I have to say, when he got stabbed and Ghostface says it's an honor, I'm like, yeah, but we've seen Dewey stabbed in every single movie and he's always gotten out of it. And so it's after the scene when we see a coroner's bag and I'm like, did they really kill him? Maybe not. Maybe that coroner's bag is just the cop from the nurse's station. Oh, come on. Maybe Dewey's still alive. I held hope until credits rolled that Dewey was not dead and they wouldn't Dewey like that. But they did. Oh, wow. No, I think it's pretty clear by, again, they hit him in the back, then they hit him in the front, and then they just pull up and gut him and he falls Christ-like to the ground and they're like, it was an honor, you know. It's sad to lose who has become my favorite character in this franchise since Randy left. Hmm, I see. I guess I've been okay not liking the characters. I mean, again, Scream 3, I don't think I had the problem with it that others do. It did what a lot of slasher movies do. It suddenly became about you enjoying the killer attacking despicable people. So it it was a weird turn to realize I did care about Dewey. Because I didn't think I really did. But this movie needed stakes. And now it finally has some. You know, we've had a lot of false deaths. And sure, they killed the kid from Don't Breathe and Goosebumps. But that didn't really mean a whole lot to me. Now we really have some feeling invested in Ghostface. And it's good enough to bring Sidney Prescott back into the picture 
as well. She said she wouldn't ever step foot into Woodsboro, but by morning she's gotten the news and she is, I don't know how she got there, but she has come into the picture for the next 45 minutes. You mentioned the editing. Did you notice that like it's nighttime when Dewey is stabbed? Yes. It's daytime when Mm -hmm. Nev arrives and- No, no. Let me, let me walk you through this. So Sam says, we need to get to the hospital in broad afternoon daylight. It's sunset as they're driving across town, and it's night when they get to the hospital. I thought Woodsboro was a really tiny town. Like, it doesn't take <laughs> you hours to get places. It's not L.A. But the very next day, the day after when Nev is showing up, we've got Sam telling them in broad daylight, quite clearly lit by sunlight, forget this, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of town, which is a smart move. You know, it's kind Mm -hmm. of like, don't run up the stairs. If there's a killer in town, get the fuck out of town. I liked that choice. And then it's nighttime when she's leaving. And I'm like, all right. Now, I have been in hospitals a few times and getting discharge papers can take fucking hours. But that day flew by. Yeah, no, this is what I mean about, like, maybe it's not all the editing. I, what I imagine is the editor is just trying to move this along, that they had too much backstory and script pages to get through, and just too much was being set up, and it's like chop, 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 chop. But I want to point out two credited screenwriters, one that had worked with uh, the directors on Ready or Not, and then one guy that is just, you know, a script for hire guy who had done everything from Zodiac to Amazing Spider-Man 2. And that guy wrote the screenplay, and then these directors were brought in and brought the other part of their trio to do the rewrite. But this was a script looking for a director, not directors who had the power to say, we want to bring back Scream. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a messy story, and I imagine, like all of the sequels, it had its struggles. What I believe deeply is that what they originally wrote is not what's here in the final product. It feels like there was a lot of futzing around. And yeah, my biggest, I couldn't make sense of it. But when Tara's like, yeah, we need to get out of town and I'm not having an asthma attack, but I don't have my second inhaler, so we need to go to the killer's house, I definitely said she's the killer. I was like, I don't know why she would have herself attacked in the beginning and then turn out to be the killer, but she's the killer. I was convinced of that because it's so stupid for her to insist that I'm not going to get an inhaler from a pharmacy I've got to go by Amber and, like, pick it up at Stu's house. The plot device of Tara's inhaler took a little too long to materialize. I think that that inhaler should have been more prominent instead of just used once at the beginning. We never saw her use it after that. So this feels a little bit lazy, I think, on the screenwriter's part or filmmakers, because it was a very long callback to, like, the first 10 minutes of the movie. So help me out with this. Why does Amber live at Stu's house? She's not related to him. No, I think that they just bought the house. And it's a memorial. So like, it's not a party per se, although it, you know, people are doing shots and playing loud music. But theoretically, they've all gathered to mourn the fact that Wes is dead. Yeah, nobody cared about Vince. And this should drive home. We've had very few kills so far this movie. Mm-hmm. I guess one of the rules of the requel isn't you have to up your body count. No, they definitely couldn't make that argument. I like how they all decide to throw a huge party, even though that school had been canceled as public safety, because why not? If you're seriously in danger, let's throw a party. Oh, wait, that may have been what happened the last two years in America. 
Yeah, so for bizarre reasons, Tara has insisted that rather than run away like her sister wants, rather than go to their own house, which again, I think they're neighbors, like she could just go to her own house and get her, you know, inhaler, they're going to go to see Amber, who when she's told where's the inhaler, calls off the whole party and has everyone go home or something. Like, I really feel like there's a lot of confusion from this point on. Like, I don't know why things are happening. But they're happening because they happened that way in the original Scream. If you remember the house party that was going on, everyone got wind of the fact that Henry Winkler was strung up on the goalpost and they all left the central characters to be running around for the climax here Amber is staging it so that there's a similar depopulated group of folks for the last 30 minutes. When they arrive to Stu Mocker's house to get the inhaler is when my suspicions of Richie and Amber being the killers is really coming to fruition here. Richie was very enthused about getting this inhaler, even though they were in mortal danger. And he seemed very lackadaisical when he got there. Like, hey, we can take our time. I'm going to go basement and get some beers because why not? It just seemed really out of place when you're literally running for your life to get away from killers. I mean, I kind of went with this, but yeah, it did seem a little bit much to end the party when all you had to do was give the girl the inhaler and let her go on her way. Yeah. But Amber was already on my suspect list at this point, too. High up on the suspect list. I was surprised that the list was still so big because the twins are still there. We're getting some drama because Chad won't sleep with Liv. He wanted to sleep with Liv. Liv's ready. But now Chad's like, how do I know you're not the killer? Which pisses Liv off. Funniest joke in the movie, I have to say. And and the audience laughed both times of just like, I'm not 100% sure you're not going to kill me. So can we just keep making out here on the couch uh, around potential witnesses? Like that's, it's true. Like you got to appreciate the way that he's thinking here in this moment. Cause Liv does look really scary. And Mindy is going to the basement with Amber and Amber's like, I'm the killer. And now let's talk about the basement here for a second. You guys notice the mask, right? In no. the basement. It's not a mask. There's like an, a robe hanging on the wall And on top of it is like a white shirt. So it looks like it's the Scream guy. Like you're supposed to be scared. Oh, yeah. When they first turn on the light. Yeah. A few times in this movie, they have shapes that look like Ghostface Killer, but end up just being, yeah, a a coat on a hat. I don't think that was a shirt, though, because it's only at the top part, like where you'd hang like a hat or something. And maybe this is where Amber keeps her costume. Again, she is the killer. And she will need to do a change because she is the one that's going to go out there and kill Chad when he decides to chase after Liv. Like, it's kind of weird. Like, I don't know how she got Liv's phone or cloned Liv's phone to lure him out. But Chad had been pressuring his girlfriend the whole time to get a Find My Fam app. And now she's going to use that to lure him into the bushes and stab him seven times, not eight. So he's going to live. I'm not even sure you can clone phones anymore. Uh, you know what? You just go with it, right? It's a magical device that just allows you to create confusion about maybe it is an Amber. Speaking about the find my phone bit, this is actually true is, you know, Apple has come out with those air tags and these things are insidious because they're the size of like a 50 cent piece. And you could, I could just toss one in Stewart's car He'll never see the damn thing. And I know where Stewart's car is 24-7 on my app. (laughs) 
so Sydney does that to Sam and is able to know where Sam's driving without having to follow her. But this is true. There's actually been news stories recently of like spouses following each other online and finding out your spouse is cheating because you know where their keys are and all of this. And you could just, yeah, drop an air tag in somebody's car and then just trace them on a map. Let's put a finer point on that. We don't get our information from rules of serial killers anymore. It's all about social media. Again, it's what Scream, the TV series, knew. Like, we, we can't build it around horror movies anymore. That doesn't really have the universal awareness that it did in 1996. The only reason why they can still keep going back to Stab is because this is the hometown where those murders happened, and they can go back to the house that originally was where all the bloodshed was. But I think this movie is really struggling to come up with those rules that apply to what movies can teach us. It's much more interesting to think about how social media has taken away privacy. And then after Chad goes away for the rest of the movie, but survives, his sister also is going to get a scare. She's going to be making out with a woman there and, again, just choosing to watch the film instead of continue making out. And we're going to replay. It's kind of funny that she's watching the stab version of Jamie Kennedy's turn around Jamie scene when he's watching Halloween and now Ghostface is coming up behind Mindy as she's yelling turn around to the TV screen and then she realizes maybe I should turn around. (laughs) Yeah, Mindy's kind of a flip character. I mean, she was the one that when they were talking about Tara being in the hospital, she's like, well, she may die. You know, like (laughs) she goes down to the basement and she's like, I might be the killer. Like you're the dumb one. Like she is the know-it-all. She inherited that from her uncle I know how things work. I laugh at other people. And you're right. It is sort of a meta joke here that we're watching her experience the same scene that killed her uncle while she's laughing about that. Like, that's kind of perverse in of itself. You're laughing at your own uncle's death as it was dramatized in a movie you profess to love. And it may be the way that you die, except right at the last minute, you realize you need to be smarter than them and only get like a neck wound. And she lives too. She's hauled away at the end as well. It seems odd that the twins would live and be alive. Now you thought they were dead, of course, because they hid the fact that they were alive. But it seems odd. It's like they're setting it up for a sequel. I found it funny because in Scream 4, when I rewatched it, they said modern horror movies rules are very different. You might have sex and live. You might not have sex and die. The only way to be sure that you survive is to be gay. And here she is, a lesbian, and she gets to survive the film. Yeah, again, just going to show that because we don't live in a conservative era where the morality of puritanicalism is so rooted in our slasher movies that everyone that does sinful things dies, there's no rules to extract from anymore. There is, because we like twists so much in this era, there's really nothing that Mindy could provide as a template for survival for this killer. Just don't do what the original does. I think is the only way that you can be sure you're going to live. If you don't go to Stu's house tonight, you might have a chance. But if you're going to tempt fate and try to, you know, live in the shadow of what happened in the original, you could bite it here. And this is about the time where we find out one of the killers is Amber. Liv has been trying to, 
you know, she was offended that she was told she's too boring to be the killer, but she's come back running in, covered in blood, claiming she found Chad, who is still alive, but I, we're, we're to think she found him dead. And Amber pulls out the gun and shoots her. Yeah, that was quite not the experience I was expecting there. You didn't think it was Amber? Oh, no, no, no. I knew it was Amber. The gun. Oh. I mean, that was really just a holy cow moment that I didn't expect. But if you pay attention and go back, she starts to go through and deflect blame onto other people starting at the very beginning of the movie. She's blaming the boyfriend. She's blaming the twins and just setting up little doubts in the viewers' minds as to who the killer might be. So again, the problem with this is that they didn't set up enough between the kills to make us get a motive or suspect anything. It's just by horror movie tropes that I'm like, oh, the boyfriend did it and the best friend did it because that's what you do. And for a movie that is big on the rules of horror, they should have done this a little better. Yeah. And notice also who she pointed at next, Richie. You know, in the same way those guys like kind of stabbed each other and we're trying to hurt each other. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she's shooting at him next. So they kind of like each other and they kind of like hurting each other as well. They're masochists. And I just want to say I really do dig Amber here. This actress, she also did a very memorable, similar performance in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She was the Manson family person that came for Leo and he burned her up in his pool. Yeah, here, like, there's just such glee that she takes in murdering that it's infectious. I just love watching her do her murder. I did not like her. I saw that she was in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, so I figured she was one of those many, many Manson girls. No, she's the Manson girl you remember. She's the one in the pool. But for some reason, she stuck out as not one of the group. And again, this is part of why I was fingering her as the killer, but her performance here didn't feel like the other teenagers. Agreed. And again, it's kind of like, how does this click work? Where does Tara fit into all of this? Again, Amber and Tara were texting at the beginning. They, Amber was the one coming over to raid the liquor cabinet. I got the sense that they were younger and they were friends and that they didn't hang out with these other kids. Like, it didn't feel like she was one of them. But again, I'm just saying that when she's finally on top, Courtney Cox and screaming, I can't believe I get to do Dewey and Gale, and the spittle coming out of her mouth, the grin that she has, she is a very satisfying uh visage of horror like she doesn't need a mask to be scary she's super creepy i just love that sydney yells if anybody here isn't the killer come out now and then shoot first then open the door (laughs) i love that tact i think that is the way to go into a house where there might be a killer yeah sid has learned again she is the most believably badass that she's ever been. The, the series has always asked her at the final reel to suddenly find her inner courage and stop running and start taking an umbrella to the killer or whatever stupid thing the sequels had her do. But here it actually feels like she's smart and the killer ought to be worried. She's going to, yes, find them and hurt them. And she does. She The person she finds is Richie and she shoots him in the leg. Yeah, he will end up being the second killer, but it takes a beat to find that out. Because first she's got to wrestle with Amber on the ground. And Sam gets the gun. This gives Richie an opportunity to limp up and stab Sam. We, we want to see that as the reveal of the killer. He's going to hurt his girlfriend, the one that he claims to love. 
And they play this one a lot like the first one. The explanation is all going to come in the kitchen like the first one as they explain their twisted plans. And may I just say that this clicked with me a little bit, you know? They talk about, we need to save the franchise for the true fans. And the words true fans are triggering to me. I hate what I call the true fan police online, where you are going to gatekeep a fandom and say, if you're a true fan, then you've watched every episode of the Clone Wars cartoon series because you know Lucas says that's canon. Or if you're a true fan, you've read all of the novels. Or how can, you know, just anytime you use the term true fan, and I can't say I've never used it, but in the past decade, I have become so hyper aware of that gatekeeping, like, there's hierarchies in nerd culture. We're all nerds. Get over it, right? There's not, <laughs> oh, I'm a better nerd than you because I'm a true fan. Fuck you, asshole. Anyone who uses true fan is a douche in my book. And so when I find out that what these are, earlier they mentioned 4chan, and I wish that they would have kept with that and said these two met on 4chan with their toxic fandom and things. But no, they met on Reddit with their toxic fandom. But if you're going to pick a topic for today the fact that fans feel so fucking entitled to the franchise and yes star wars fans have been among the fucking worst whether you love or hate the last jedi and i've been embroiled in some of these goddamn dramas where somebody claimed to work with me at my job and claimed that they came to my house and that things happened there involving lucasfilm that never fucking happened so there's all of this true fan, we know the franchise better than the people running the franchise crap that pisses me off. And I'm so glad to see a couple of those douches get killed in this movie. Agreed. I, I think it is a very now kind of killer. Like, yes, that they're so loyal to the original and they're so protective of it that they're willing to take life to get a movie. What I, It took me a second watching to really realize this. What do they want out of this? What is this that they're hoping? They want to see another good movie, another great movie. Like, these sequels aren't very good, so if we rig it so that they retell it the way we like it with legacy characters, it must be how Hollywood feels held hostage by fans today. Like, boy, we tried to do something for you, and you are now, like, threatening my children and, you know, just real menacing. Yeah, like, that people's love of something makes them psychotic feels like something that, yes, very much appropriate to see play out here. The true fan thing is often used against women because people think that women can't like certain properties and things. And it's very common that women will be called not true fans because like they can't name like the first appearance of Mephisto. I mean, women will get asked if you've got like a comic book shirt on, well, do you remember when this character appeared? What episode or what issue? And it's like, it's something that men use to keep women down. It's very misogynistic. So it's kind of interesting that they're calling themselves true fans in this. And it's a woman doing it. And then using that to further whatever plan they had. We're giving Hollywood, Hollywood will adapt Gail's book. Gail is there. She's going to write a book just like she did that gave us the first one. 
And we're going to make sure that the story she tells is right. And it has Sydney in it. And it has the daughter of Billy Loomis as the killer. All these details that we have signed off on. We know the plot of the next movie because we've engineered it. So yeah, we're going to say Sam's guilty. She's going to get killed for it. And then in two years, we're going to be able to go to a movie theater and enjoy the movie that we like. The one thing where they back away, yes, there is a lot of gender gatekeeping and things like Marjorie called out, but you can't talk about toxic fandom without bringing up Comics Gate and all of that because, you know, one of the first toxic fandoms is comic fandom and how the Comics Gate people claimed that Marvel and DC became social justice warriors and what this movie pusses out of is bringing up the fact that that a lot of these divisions are stemming from the political divide in this country. A lot of the hate of The Last Jedi is because of social justice warrior messages and what they call admiral gender studies in there. And again, look at what happened with Ghostbusters 2016 and all the misogyny around that. Don't fem up our franchise. There's a huge political divide in views that also seems to become a fandom rift. It's maybe too big for this movie to tackle, but it is just something innately there that I've noticed when it comes to these toxic fandoms, and I'm not alone in noticing this. Oh no, I agree, but I think the weird thing is, is horror genre is maybe the one where women triumph, and you can't really say that women haven't historically been the stars of the series you know like superheroes yes you're displacing men to have women do men's work that can offend people but in the horror it's always about you know the final girl it's rarely about the final guy so there's no real opportunity i guess i would say that we would expect and need for Sydney and I mean if it were Dewey <laughs> and Nev Campbell died a, an hour ago I that would be that would be <laughs> shocking I'll just give them that they do mention politics just a little bit when we watch Richie watching that YouTube channel where they're doing the takedown of Stab 8 and everything the social justice warrior type thing is brought up but yeah it's just Again, when dealing with toxic fandom, they've just hit me where I live with this. And I'm like, yes, yes, this is how toxic fans are. They're a step away from doing this. <laughs> the idea would obviously be to pull back from the killing impulse and to allow people just to enjoy whatever they enjoy without judgment would be the better way to go. But again, yeah, when you really love something and you care that it gets done exactly to your specifications, it means that you don't care who you hurt to achieve that aim. And so that means even hurting the people on which the original story was based. That's the irony here, is that they stab Sid and tell her that she has to die too. Fortunately for Sid, Gail's a pretty good shot. And will uh, if Amber wants to pass the torch to her, she's going to have to do it on fire. She gets knocked onto the lit stove. They threw a bottle of alcohol on her face, and it just, the way they shot it, you could constantly see that alcohol on the face, and I'm just like, they're going to set her on fire. They're going to set her on fire. Oh, she's near a gas stove. They're going to set her on fire. It was hand sanitizer. Oh, is that what it was? No. They mentioned that. It looked like alcohol to me, but yes, I've seen bottles of hand sanitizer that size, particularly these days. Yeah. Okay. Interesting choice on how to do that there, but you know, it's kind of a throwback to Last House on the Left where you're having a fight in the kitchen and you use whatever means necessary. 
But and again, she did this in the Tarantino movie. Again, watching her burn is kind of her thing. Like I, I really enjoy it. But <laughs> surprise, they did turn around and she wasn't dead after being burned horrifically on the gas stove. So she was able to be alive and get shot. But Sam's a little bit more sticky because again, you could say that she's becoming more like Sid or you could say she's becoming more like Billy. She lures Richie into a trap. He wants his ending. He follows the blood trail up to the door where he thinks she is. She's really behind the one where she can jump on him. And she looks in the mirror. Her dad gives the sign off. Perhaps the most ridiculous part of this whole movie was the vision of Skeet Ulrich telling Sam where the knife was so she could kill Richie. A little bit strange. Your dead father that was a serial killer has now come back to guide your life. Not really sure if that's the kind of path she needs to go down on her life. It's not Nev Campbell that's telling her to do this. This is the killer of the first movie encouraging her to not just slit his throat, but I mean, it's way more than six, eight stabs. Like, I don't know how many she puts in him, but he's whimpering by the end of it. Like, she's gone psycho. And so is she the new killer? Is I guess what I would ask here is if they made Scream 6 with her, I would say that they get rid of the murder mystery plot and suddenly she is Michael Myers. Amber says the problem with this series is they haven't had a consistent killer. Here she is. It would work better if I believed this actress could do that. But she ain't no Freddy Krueger. But it is satisfying to see her choose to be proactive in slitting his throat. I mean, we learned from the first film, they're always going to get back up. You have to take that extra step and shoot them in the head and cut their throat and things. And she does that blade cleaning move. Remember, we talked about it in the earlier shows. Yes, because she's the killer now. That's exactly what I'm saying. That's not an empowerment, you go girl moment. That is, oh, you broke. And now everything that you feared you were going to become, you ran away because you thought you might hurt people. Now you are that. But she's going to have a moment after. Now that, you know, we have one quick moment where... Amber comes back all burned up and she gets shot in the head too. But there is going to be the moment between Sam and Nev where Sam is like, am I going to be okay? Mm -hmm. And Nev says yes. Yeah. And then she turns around and looks in a reflective piece of glass and Billy Bloody smiles back at her. I mean, are we supposed to feel like empath towards him? No. Well, I mean... We're supposed to feel nostalgic about the original, so I think we're supposed to be glad to see Skeet again. Although, again, I wasn't sure it was the original actor and not a look-alike or a really bad CGI uh, model over someone, maybe uh, not even a human being. But, yeah, again, I think the emotion they're going for is you could see it one of two ways. This is either a victory or a tragedy. She has either become what she feared or she has triumphed. But if there's a... Scream 6, again, it didn't work for Friday the 13th when they tried to pass the hockey mask to someone other than Jason. I don't think it would work. I don't think particularly this actress would be a satisfying, consistent ghost face. Would she be a satisfying, consistent final girl the way Nev was? She would be fine at that. She would be no worse. But you'd need something else. I mean, the reason why I don't think there'll be a sequel to this movie is what's to come back to? What they've clearly done is put a button on it. We've made something that restored this franchise so that it feels like it felt like the original. And now we're walking away. I can guarantee you, Courtney Cox, Nev Campbell, they're not coming back. No. It would have to be on the shoulders of Sam and Tara. I mean, that's laughable. Well, before we talk about six, 
Let's finish up on five. Marjorie Stewart, do you recommend Scream 2022? Marjorie. This is going to come as a shock to a lot of you, but I'm going to give this one a mild recommend because it wasn't as bad as the others. I felt that they kind of made it more fun. It was a little bit of a horror comedy. That's not to say it's without problems because I felt that they could have really developed the toxic fandom part of it or maybe the motives for Amber and Richie a little bit more because that kind of fell flat. It just seemed kind of out of nowhere where they were lovers who met on Reddit and wanted to redo Stab in a fan's vision. Just having that middle speech about the requels and all of that stuff really wasn't enough. I feel they should have put a little bit more in, not necessarily in that scene, but like maybe mention it more a few times. The one thing this movie had going for it is I think it's now more in the style of modern horror where it's a little bit more gruesome. And I think that really fit well with it. Though people survived the gore, so I'm not sure where this is going with that. But I'm going to give it a mild to weak recommend. Stuart. Yeah, and I would say if you're feeling sentimental... Uh, you want to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Scream, this makes sense as a souvenir. They have done a bang-up job fulfilling the requirements of a requel, and that's what we're calling it, making it a satisfying callback of legacy characters with new ones. But I'm going to stop of saying it's like one of the best examples of that. When I look at something like Halloween Kills, I see David Gordon Green and Jamie Lee Curtis pushing the boundaries of what a Michael Myers movie can do. And they keep trying to innovate. And this movie, Scream 5, is really just all about playing the old songs. They are not trying to break new hits out of this. They just want you to enjoy what you already have. And innovation is not on the table here. I mean, I think even Nev Campbell says that in the movie. She's like, this feels like the most derivative one of all. You can make that case. It is the one most indebted to what has happened before and least interested in paving a new path. Which is not to say there's not career franchise highs here. I really think that the direction is more confident than Wes Craven. To me, it feels less of a comedy and is stronger for that. More of a horror movie. It gets career best performances out of David Arquette and Courtney Cox and Nev Campbell. Amber and Richie are satisfying villains. I think they really nail the motives of the killers in a satisfying way. And Amber is scary and Richie uses his Dennis Quaid smile to good effect here. So again, a lot of stuff that I feel really works for this one, but problems. You do feel the energy flag because it's never quite sure about where it needs to be focused. You do feel like Sam is just not as edgy. If they had, if they'd taken Liv and combined her with Sam, I feel like you would have had a character that really felt like on the edge of psychosis, uh, whereas someone that just feels ready for her CW show. So I never believed she could be Billy Loomis, and I never felt like the youngsters were doing anything more than placating their parents. Because let's just face it, being retro about slasher movies is not what the kids today are obsessed with. This is what we liked. This is a franchise that made way more sense in the 90s than it does in any other decade. And I just don't believe that these youthful characters, good as they are in this movie, really care that much about what happened in Stab and horror movies like it. Uh, I don't know if they like elevated horror or not. Maybe they like the Babadook more. 
but they just don't care enough for me to be convinced that this has a long shelf life. I don't think that people will remember this movie. I don't think it will add much to the legacy, but it puts a nice button on it, particularly if you felt like the sequels had been flagging. I don't wouldn't call this great, but it does restore the dignity about what I liked about the original, and it's a good time, so it's a recommend. Going back to the original Scream review and my first time seeing Scream, I remember when Scream came out and I'm like, ah, oh, Wes Craven, meh, slashers haven't been very good lately. I didn't go and see Scream until its very last night in theaters when some friends called me up and are like, why don't we go see Scream? And I'm like, yeah, I've heard some good things about it by this point. Not excited to go see Scream. Well, let's go see Scream. And I had a really good time with it. It's almost like I completely relived that experience this time. I'm like, I don't know, Scream. Do I really need a revival of Scream? I don't even remember Scream 4 at all. I can tell you everything that happened in the first Scream trilogy. I've seen those many, many times. But I don't remember 4. Wes isn't even around. Is this a cash grab? Of course it is. Do we really need this? And then I start hearing some good things. You know, I was surprised that it got as many positive reviews as it did. I didn't read the reviews, but I couldn't not see the headlines pop up in my feeds. And I go, and I have a really good time with this one. I was shocked that I had as good a time as I did for a film that I had no expectation for or desire for. I did revisit part four because I did say on that show part four was the best since the original. And... It turns out part four is very forgettable, but I still think it was better than two and three. And here, I think this is better than four. I also do fear this is going to end up being very forgettable. Yeah. I just don't think this film feels necessary. Mm -hmm. And it because it is so far apart from that original trilogy, I do feel like part four, this is going to possibly go down in anonymity. But I had a good time watching it. I liked the murder mystery. I do think these directors are better than Wes. I agree with both of you in saying this is a disjointed film. And I do think some post-production or some production issues and who knows what role COVID played. I know this was filmed in September 2020. So who knows what that may have done to this ending as well. The first is still the only scream anybody needs. But you know what? I liked this one and it's the first scream film to get three recommends. There's something to be said about that. Yeah. <laughs> Agreed. And the reason why I just can't imagine it going forward is you have to have it'd be the voice of young people. And I just didn't hear the voice of young people in this. Even the people taking over here are in their 40s. Like, I want to hear from them. You come to the Facebook and let us know if you are someone that's 15, 16, and you just absolutely love Friday the 13th from 1980 and feel like you still extract rules from of life from it. Like, I just feel like that was who we were. That was Generation X. We were people that were raised by television and enjoyed deconstructing and taking life lessons semi-ironically from it. Today's youth, they communicated a different way. These things mean something different to them. I just don't know how you keep it going with this series doesn't suit them. It doesn't fit them. It isn't what they like. It's not on TikTok. More importantly, if you're a Gen Zer and listening to us, come to our Facebook page and let me know, because I feel like <laughs> we are with the Gen X and millennial crowd. You know, I yeah. you, you said 16-year-olds let us know. I don't think we have too many of them on our Facebook group. <laughs> I'm very curious. And 
now playing does not have a TikTok for you page. So I, I am curious, but I think I know what Scream 6 would be. Okay. There was one character here that did not return that was going to return in Scream 3. According to Wes Craven himself, Stu survived Scream. He was not the one shot in the head. Billy Loomis was shot in the head. Stu was going to come back in Scream 3 in the early Kevin Williamson drafts of the film. So that Stu didn't return here, but Billy did. The directors have said they're open to making another one. The studio has said, depending on performance, they're open to making another one. I bet if the next one comes back, it's Scream 6, the return of Matthew Lillard. Mm. I'm out. <laughs> I mean, I guess you do that, but I here's the struggle that I'm having. If this is really going to survive, and by that I mean uh, mean something to new generations, you can't look back anymore. It can't be about the original. This was the movie that closed the door on what they did in 1996, and what comes next should be forward thinking or don't do it. Like th- to keep going back to Sidney Prescott. And what her mother did is becoming annoying, frankly. Like, she doesn't want to do it. I don't want to do it. Let's do something else. My thought would be, if this is The Scream Awakens, and the next one is The Last Scream, what if you had Matthew Lillard as a Hannibal Lecter type who is coaching the next generation of Ghostface, you know? You could still have legacy characters in there while pushing the new generation to carry the film. I feel like... Wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're saying he's running like a ghost face killer terrorist camp? (laughs) Not necessarily that, but... I mean, that's what it kind of sounds like. I mean, are they like training in Arizona in the desert for this and... I'm just picturing maybe he's somewhere in jail and we find out in the next film he knows who Ghostface is, but he won't reveal it. You know, that kind of a thing. You might be. I'm not going to say that they won't do it. All I'm really saying is I don't want it. I hope that never transpires. I hope they can let a good thing go on a high note. Because isn't that the fantasy that we can finally be done with something? That's what these killers wanted. We want a good movie and then we can say, ah, it's restored. That's enough. That's all we needed to do. We needed to restore Scream to the reputation that it had in 1996. Now that that's almost kind of halfway done, let it go. Why drive it back into the ground? I mean, Halloween ends this year. They're saying no more Michael Myers. Until the reboot. (laughs) Well... Again, but then that's on whoever else decides to do that. The the professional thing to do would be to say goodbye, thanks everyone, and then come up with a new concept. Have something that speaks to today's horror audience. I just know that when Wes came back in 2011, the big talk was having a second Scream trilogy out of that. Mm, mm. And I I can't help but feel that this weekend's box office, they're going to want a new Scream trilogy with this as part one. You might be right. But we'll find out. I don't think it's going to take very long for them to announce a sequel, whether or not they actually make it. You know, they always announce a sequel after a movie does really well at the box office. So we'll see. I think we'll know in two to three years. And again, I shouldn't be mad about that because I've liked all five. All five are a green arrow. Mild though some might be. The only true misstep that I say you skip is the TV show. It just didn't speak to me. But uh, yeah, if they keep up the quality, I shouldn't complain. 
Meanwhile, if you want more slashers, we certainly have that on the main feed for you. We are going back to one of Now Playing's earliest reviews, because at the behest of one of our patrons, he wanted us to review the original 1981 My Bloody Valentine. And way back in 2009, we did review the My Bloody Valentine 3D. So we're doing both those films again for the next two weeks. You know, I went to a store this past week and Valentine's Day shit was everywhere. So I guess it's not too early for a bloody Valentine. Yeah, we were going to try to put it closer to Valentine's Day, but fuck you, Morbius. <laughs> mm, yeah, so hard to program our main feed or anything right now. But we're also, if you're in the mood for horror, finishing up another series that may be done forever, Paranormal Activity. For Gold Level, we've been going through all previous six movies. The new Paramount Plus movie, Next of Kin, is reviewed this Friday. And then we will be revealing the new 2022 donor series. So find all the details about that at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. So thank you for being with Now Playing this week. Don't forget in the nowplayingpodcast.com archives, you can find reviews of basically everything that has ever influenced a Scream film. I did like the point in Scream 4 when I rewatched it and Hayden Paytiere lists all the films that had the remakes in the aughts of The Fog and Black Christmas and My Bloody Valentine. And I'm like, shit, we reviewed all that. And it's all in the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. We have done nearly 1,200 in-depth movie reviews, and you can find them all at our website. So, Stuart, Marjorie, thank you for joining me. Thank you. And we will talk to you next week. That'll be a wrap. The sequel discussion to be continued. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Scream Retrospective Series. Watch a few movies, take a few notes. <laughs> it was fun. <laughs> you can listen to other episodes of this series at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. You like scary movies? Uh-huh. If you like scary movies, then head to nowplayingpodcast.com where you can find our retrospective reviews of other horror series, including A Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, Friday the 13th, Saw, and many others. More blood, more gore. Carnage candy. Your core audience just expects it. As well as individual movie reviews of The Human Centipede, Ready Player One, Pulp Fiction, Apocalypse Now, Dr. Strangelove, and hundreds more. Stop it, Billy, would you, all right? I can't take any more. Support from listeners like you keeps Now Playing Podcast on the air. Nice twist, huh? Didn't see it coming, did you? And you can join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign for early access to new episodes, exclusive reviews, and bonus reviews. It's all a movie. It's all one great big movie. Need more now playing? Subscribe to our In Focus weekly newsletter for exclusive digital download giveaways, celebrity interviews, behind-the-scenes insights, and more. Sign up through the subscribe page on our website and get it delivered to your inbox every Friday. So where are you? I'm going to take the party out. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes, and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. Don't you blame the movies! 
Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. Now Playing Podcast is produced and edited by Arnie Carvalho. See, we're about love, respect, and responsibility. A harmonica style is okay, okay right? Man. Oh, yeah. Associate produced by Jason Latham. So, have I covered everything? Are there any questions, any comments? You know what, though? Who gives a flying fuck anyway? The now playing Scream opening credits are performed by Jen and Arnie. No, please don't kill me, Mr. Ghostface. I want to be in the sequel. Now playing credits read by Brock. Not much of a story here, just a bunch of kids cutting it loose. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. My lawyer liked that. Not as much as I did. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2022. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Now you gotta die. Those are the rules. This is Gale Weather signing off. Now if you'll excuse me, I have some oozing to do. And again, this is part of why I was fingering her as the killer, but she just, her performance, (laughs) what? Yeah, fingering her, you know. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, I didn't even mean it like that. It's I know. I know, but it's a bad choice of words. (laughs) No, I mean, I, you know, as long as you just don't pause, don't pause. That's why I'm fingering her. No, you don't say it like that. That's why I'm fingering her as the killer. You got to say it again. I don't know, Mephisto in a... Oh, is that a cat? No, Mephisto is the devil character from Marvel. Okay, see, I did good. I thought it was the cat from Cats. No, that's Mr. Mistopheles. Thank you. (laughs) I hate musicals.